Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. If you are an ASHP member, you will also have opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for more information. My name is Lance Ray, and our guests today are Kurt Geyer and Andrew Smith, both out on the West Coast. Kurt is an emergency medicine pharmacist at San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center in San Francisco, California. Andrew is an emergency medicine pharmacist at Scripps Mercy Healthcare in San Diego, California. In this episode, we'll be discussing the utilization of ketamine in the emergency department. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Lance. Thanks for having us. So let's start with an overview of what we'll be talking about today. Briefly, since this is a CE talk, our learning objectives need to be listed. They are first to describe the indication, dosing, routes, and monitoring for ketamine. And second, to discuss advantages and disadvantages of ketamine. And finally, we will identify patient populations who are the best candidates for ketamine. So we decided a good way to organize this in lieu of the objectives was to cover each of these within the various indications of ketamine. Since ketamine is such a unique drug, we'll cover this in three major sections. So we'll start with what's commonly referred to, to as pain dose ketamine. Then we'll move to ketamine at higher doses, like procedural sedation. Then at the end, we'll talk about high dose ketamine for things like extreme agitation. And we'll discuss kind of these objectives we laid out within each one. So let's start with pain dose ketamine. Kurt, can you start us off with some indications, dosing, and monitoring for pain dose ketamine? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, analgesic dose, or sometimes you'll hear it called subdissociative dose ketamine, um, is is really a great option for a variety of patients in the ED that we'll talk about. Um, really, what we're looking for here is something less than 0.3 milligrams per kilo, um, usually like 15 or 20 milligrams. This can be done either as an IV bolus or a slow infusion. And the monitoring here is pretty easy. I guess you should probably have your patient on a monitor to check their blood pressure and heart rate. Uh, but outside of that, there's not a lot that'll happen um, at this low of a dose. Maybe uh, check on nausea and vomiting for sure, and then also just make sure you're actually getting the effect you want and treating pain. Thanks, Kurt. Andrew, is there a, like an article you'd pick to support a specific dose here? Yeah. Um, so back in 2015, uh, Dr. Sergey Motov, out where I trained emergency medicine, actually, at Mamandi's Medical Center, I uh, did a small randomized uh, convenience sample, uh, and it was a convenience sample just because that's when the pharmacist was there to randomize uh, the medications. And essentially what they looked at was a weight-based morphine at 0.1 milligrams per kilo uh, versus this sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine 0.3 milligrams per kilo. And what they did was they, you know, compared patients' perspective or, uh, you know, subjective pain scores on a scale of uh, zero to 10. And the change in the pain score in the ketamine versus the morphine group respectively was negative 8.6 and negative 8.5 versus the baseline. Um, And so that's really what established uh, ketamine as a non-inferior drug to uh, weight-based opioid medications. Uh, Interestingly, you know, one of the major side effects, and we'll probably get into this a little bit later, um, is the disassociation or sometimes patients feel uncomfortable with the rapid administration of ketamine, even at these sub-anesthetic doses. So in 2019, they kind of looked at a drip versus a push study 
And what they did was they, you know, compared ketamine administered IV push, which is commonly how we administer these, these medications versus like a 10 or 15 minute infusion. And they found that there was a lower rate of uh, patient reported adverse drug events in the 15 minute infusion group. And so that's kind of the preferred way to administer these medications at this point. Great. Thanks. You know, I'll be honest when I posed this question, when I wrote this question for uh, our, our podcast, I actually had in mind a, a different study, which we'll put both of these in the, in the, in the show notes. Um, but that's certainly an important index study. There was another one I was thinking about of uh, love it and, and colleagues uh, in 2021 compared, this is, this is obviously sub- sequential sort of later on they did studied two different doses of ketamine you know a 0.15 versus 0.3 so we'll put both of these in the in the show notes thank you for um, reviewing those two important studies so to summarize what we're saying is that ketamine is effective for pain at low doses kurt what populations are good candidates for pain dose ketamine Yeah, so there's a few patient populations where I think uh, ketamine really has a prominent role and probably should be a standard adjunct to other therapies. Uh, The first in my world is patients who are on methadone or buprenorphine for opioid use disorder and requiring treatment for acute pain. Um, In this aspect, ketamine offers a different mechanism of action, and so you avoid either the partial mu agonism with bup or the, the tolerance that's induced with methadone. Um, we're currently evaluating a protocol for patients with sickle cell pain crises who come into our ED utilizing, um, as Andrew mentioned, like a, a short infusion of ketamine for pain. I also think just patients who are on large doses of, of full mu agonists where you're just looking for a different mechanism. There's some evidence that uh, ketamine actually can help modulate some of the opioid tolerance that we see with full agonists and also uh, reduce hyperalgesia. Um, And then finally, a group I think we often overlook is just the patients who have already gotten a few doses of fentanyl or hydromorphone, maybe IV acetaminophen or something like that. And uh, you're just not getting the pain relief you need. And you just aren't sure that next dose of of hydromorphone is going to do it. So this offers a a different way to manage them. Thanks, Kurt. And I know that's important out in your area. You and I have talked a lot about uh, your patient population and, and having a lot of patients on medications for opiate use disorder. So these these pain doses seem like a win-win. What's to lose? Andrew, are there any disadvantages to this dose? No, I mean, honestly, you know, at this dose, you know, and especially when you administer, like we talked about, you know, we honestly, I just throw this stuff in like a 50 cc NS bag and hang it to gravity. I don't even put it on a pump. You know, if you want to put it on a pump, uh, you can, sure. Uh, we got these plum pumps that have like a, a, a second infusion, like via syringe function. It's like a syringe pump that's built into the, the primary brain of the pump. So um, sometimes that's easier than, you know, just hanging a drip to gravity. But again, I, I don't think there's many disadvantages, um, you know, as long as the patient doesn't have, you know, maybe a psychiatric history. And I think this is more of a problem in patients when they get, you know, somewhat larger doses. And we'll talk about procedural sedation later. But I have had some younger patients, you know, with not like severe anxiety, but they just had like an underlying anxiety disorder. And during the dissociative phase, they they do kind of freak out a little bit sometimes. But afterwards, they're, you know happy as a unicorn. So great. Now, and I think you highlighted an important aspect sometimes with patients with a history of something like PTSD, uh, that, that may be something that we, we give some, give some concern to give some thought to when we're doing this, but 
short lasting at, at the least. Great. You know, Lance, I, I want to add one other point, if that's okay, yeah, um, just regarding analgesia dose. Um, you know, we, we, especially in the pharmacy world, talk a lot about adverse effects and, you know, things to monitor and look out for. I think a super important point here is to reevaluate your patient's pain <laughs> and make sure that you're actually addressing the pain, like look for the positive effect. Um, and this is certainly a great agent for this indication, but it's uh, maybe not the longest lasting agent. And so reevaluate your patient, see if they need another dose um, and uh, just keep an eye on that. Definitely. Thanks, Kurt. That's a, that's a great point to bring up. Well, let's move on to the next level uh, and talk about ketamine for procedural sedation. So this low-dose, pain-dose ketamine we've been talking about is obviously not meant to dissociate a patient, um, but sometimes we do want to fully dissociate a patient, let's say for a procedure. So let's start with the indications. What would we be using this for, Andrew? Sure, yeah. So um, I guess as far as procedural sedation goes, uh, you can use it for uh, ortho procedures, uh, although I probably, you know, wouldn't use it as my preferred agent and, and especially tight joints like hips, some shoulders, you know, it can not be as relaxing as some other medications. I guess I'm not sure I would consider this a, a procedural sedation, but we do use it in reactive airway disease relatively frequently. So if I have like a, an older, especially anxious COPD or we put them on BiPAP and they're just not tolerating it well, especially our elderly patients, sometimes they're clawing at this mass, they look uncomfortable, you know, they're not letting the air exchange properly uh, with the biphasic machine. You know, I'll administer uh, a little bit lower than my normal procedural dose, which is around one milligram per kilo, you know, reduced dose for elderly and psychiatric populations. But I administer a bolus dose uh, at 0.5 milligrams per kilo, and then I'll follow that up with a continuous infusion of 0.25 milligrams per kilo per hour. And it really just provides like an anxiolytic effect. And it's honestly an underused medication. Every hospital I go to, nobody's ever heard about this stuff. But And it was very commonplace for me and my mommies when I was training. And it's incredibly useful to, you know, kind of temper these patients in an attempt to avoid intubation for these reactive airway diseases. Because we know these patients don't get extubated well, these COPDers and asthma, uh, they have a terrible, you know, success rate for extubation. So if anything you can do to prevent a tube going down these people's throats, it's always a good start. Yeah. And then obviously procedural sedation, I, I think the major one is going to be ortho procedures, but again, not good for those tight joints. Great. Uh, yeah, you, you raise a, a great point there. And it's like, well, we may want to dissociate someone and, and we don't know if we're going to intubate them or not, but we, we don't necessarily have to after dissociating someone. We had a case uh, just a few days ago where uh, someone was a uh, sinus bradycardia, uh, unstable. Uh, we were transcutaneously pacing and uh, giving some ketamine for, for pain for uh, the cutaneous pacing. And <clears throat> patient was starting to get anxious and worried and thought thought they were going to die, which is sometimes what you see with, with getting to that dissociative dose. Uh, we went ahead and, and, and fully dissociated her uh, and it was, it was safe. Um, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of different um, things to con consider there and you're, you're getting up to uh, uh, higher doses, but um, Kurt, anything else? Yeah, I want to echo that point about uh, patients who are, you know, being put on BiPAP and just not tolerating it well. I mean, this is 
probably a great study target, but it may seem counterintuitive uh, to those that aren't familiar with this practice to give a sedative to that patient who's experiencing respiratory distress. But I actually do believe it is uh, time at times intubation sparing. Like you're able to not do a more advanced airway by just having that patient tolerate their their BiPAP a little bit longer, blow off a little more CO2. As the ketamine wears off, they kind of calm down. Um, and it's really a great tool for that. Um, I will say, uh, as, as Andrew mentioned too, you know, you might need another adjunct agent if you're using this for like a hip reduction or a complicated, um, you know, fracture reduction, something like that. Uh, just because it doesn't cause muscle relaxation, it doesn't really um, get that loss of tone that you might be looking for. We still utilize it in that case, for sure. We just may also have to add on something else like propofol um, or just something else to cause a little more relaxation. That's what our ortho colleagues generally ask for. You know, as for monitoring this, uh, this is obviously a, a greater depth of, of sedation, quote unquote, if you want to, if you want to call it that. Uh, but really, it's it's the same thing. Just just watch your patient. Uh, put them on a cardiac monitor. Uh, you might have some bradyc or excuse me, tachycardia and hypertension um, at this dose. Uh, certainly, you you can get into some um, some neuropsychiatric effects here. Uh, patients may have hallucinations. Um, and then there's the stuff we don't really talk about, which is like increased secretions, which you know, if you're using this in a pediatric patient, uh, which is a great uh, opportunity, the pediatric patients tolerate ketamine really well. Uh, but if the parents are nearby, it can look like the, the child's crying, um, but it's really just a an effect of the drug. And so in that setting, I just like to warn the, the parents that this may happen and that it's totally normal and that their child likely won't remember this or will have a great story um, at the end of the procedure. Thanks, Kurt. So we talked a little bit about you know, we're getting up to the higher doses, uh, one meg per kg. Um, Andrew uh, laid out uh, alternative dosing of 0.5 mg per kg and then starting an infusion. Um, we talked a little bit about adverse effects to be concerned about with these. Uh, Andrew, anything else to add on to Kurt's comments on adverse effects? Uh, no, I think he really hit the high points. I, I think... Uh... Again, just to reiterate, oftentimes you know, I, we have these like 21 year old patients rollerblading on the boardwalk. You know, they come in with like bilateral wrist fractures and, you know, they seem young, healthy, like normal people. And then, you know, we'll give them this uh, procedural sedation to, you know, set their wrist fractures. And then, you know, suddenly they kind of start, you know, freaking out during the administration of the and the dissociative phase of it. Um, so just kind of doing your best to clean those out. It's, it's easy to miss, honestly, and, and the patients are fine afterwards, but like during the, the process of, you know, setting bilateral wrist fractures, these patients can kind of be a little bit more difficult to deal with if, if they're not in like a good place. So every time I administer ketamine uh, in the emergency department, I always tell the patient, you know, think about a happy place. We're talking about beaches and sun vacation. Uh, you want to make sure that, you know, their set and setting is good essentially. So. Great. I love it. West Coast, rollerblading on the boardwalk, beaches, sun. Move on to the um, kind of our last uh, last section here. We'll talk uh, even kind of get into even higher doses and talk about ketamine for extreme agitation. So this may be a bit more of a controversial question, but can we and should we be using ketamine at these really high doses? Um, you know, we, we can talk about pre-hospital high dose ketamine here in a minute, but uh, let's start out, uh, Andrew, with just kind of run us through um, basic dosing and the idea of high dose ketamine. Yeah. So basically you, 
I mean, when we talk about agitated, uh, you know, delirious patients, essentially, I like to think about these patients on a spectrum, right? So you have these, some patients, you know, they may be angry, they may be upset, uh, they may be on medications that are inducing a psychosis, or they may be off their medications that are controlling their psychosis, you know, and so you have patients that are, you know, essentially redirectable, redirectable, uh, you know, verbally, um, and that's the ideal way to do things. Um, you have some patients that are a little bit more moderately agitated, but they're willing to take oral medications, uh, you know, with some conversations. And then you have patients that are unfortunately a danger to potentially themselves. They're banging their head against the wall. You know, they're ripping out their IV lines. They're, uh, you know, they're physically restrained and they're, uh, you know, at potential risk of going into like rhabdo or myositis or something along those lines. Or you have patients that are a danger to, you know, staff in the hospital that are really trying to do their best to help them. And that's where I feel that, you know, ketamine is, um, the agent that you're going to use those patients that are not verbally redirectable and not willing to take oral medications. And they're either a danger to themselves or they're danger to the people surrounding them. And so when we talk about the dose that's generally administered, I, uh, I've worked at hospitals that do three milligrams, four milligrams, five milligrams. I think five milligrams was the initial dose that was studied uh, for agitated delirium. We give this intramuscularly generally because an agitated patient, you don't want to put a nurse at risk of uh, establishing IV access in an agitated patient. We always prefer the IM route. And yeah, again, it's reserved for those dangerous patients that aren't redirectable uh, and other non-pharmacologic options. Great. Uh, Kurt, tell us about your experience with high-dose ketamine. Yeah, for sure. We utilize this as well. Um, you know, I think of it as like the definitive agitation regimen. Um, it's just very infrequent where if you utilize this, especially at the doses Andrew was mentioning, that you'll have to give another agent. Um, so, you know, I think of this as the the plan for somebody where you really don't have time uh, before, you know, somebody gets hurt or the patient gets hurt themselves and you don't have time to try another agent before that. Um, or maybe you already have and that has failed and now it's time to escalate the therapy. Um, I do want to point out that, you know, the, the bioavailability of intramuscular ketamine is almost 100%. You're getting that whole drug. And so really the uh, utility of that high dose, that four or five milligrams per kilo, I think of it as twofold. Uh, the first is this is a patient population where you really don't want to underdose uh, because there's potential for the situation to escalate, actually, as this patient becomes partially dissociated. So, you know, certainly round up or aim high. Um, and then also you want a quick onset. And so that that higher dose of four or five milligrams per kilo provides a really rapid onset, probably provides a longer duration too. But really what you're looking for is control of the situation a little bit earlier on. Uh, there is evidence that a smaller dose of two or three milligrams per kilo, uh, as mentioned, is also effective. It just has a much longer onset. Um, and so if you have time to wait, I guess you could go lower. Uh, but really, we're, you know, we're dealing with a scenario that could be potentially dangerous. So we tend to aim high. Um, just to mention it, if your patient for some reason already has an IV, um, you can probably get away with like a two milligram per kilo dose um, if it's intravenous, if for some reason they already have that in place. But again, not worth uh, risking the safety of your staff to try to put in an IV just to do that. 
Yeah, totally agree. And if you are going to administer that two milligram per kilo IV dose um, in those tense situations, if the patient isn't physically restrained, uh, I think it's important for listeners to remember that, you know, uh, short durations of apnea are associated with the rate of administration of this medication, right? And so you can have people start to like really freak out um, in the room if the patient stops breathing for 15 or 20 seconds and requires some bagging and you're not prepared for that situation. So making sure that the team is aware of that. Uh, you don't see that really with the IM administration at all. Um, but the uh, limited apnea or the short duration apnea is really just associated with the rapid administration of the doses. It's, it's not an effect of the cumulative dose of the drug per se. Great. Some very salient points there. So I'm hearing keeping an eye on, on monitoring, even in, with the high dose intramuscular uh, administration too, probably a good idea to, to have the patient on in, in title CO2 as they arrive or if they're already in the uh, emergency department. So great, great review on, on high dose ketamine, uh, providing quick onset, um, highly bioavailable, um, lasts for a while, uh, it's durable. Um, to shifting over to pre-hospital, uh, do either of y'all's pre-hospital systems utilize high dose ketamine for, for extreme agitation? Uh, so we do not in the city of San Francisco, uh, not for really a clinical reason other than uh, we're a relatively small city. So usually patients are in a hospital between five and six minutes after they get picked up. Uh, so not a lot of utility for us here, but I'll, uh, I'd love to hear what Andrew has to say. Yeah, so uh, our pre-hospital providers uh, just implemented a change in their you know, base hospital protocol last year. I think the Midwest has been using this for a long time. When I left New York about three years ago, they weren't using it quite yet. Um, but everybody's experience is very good with this. I think the benefit of this for those extremely agitated patients, because we've all seen these situations where you have patients who you know, maybe are a, a fentanyl or an opioid overdose, they get Narcan, they get agitated, of course. Um, and then uh, most base hospitals have been using Versed intramuscularly as their, you know, agitated sedative agent. And uh, once that Narcan wears off, those patients can become apneic and require bagging. So ketamine has the, you know, the benefit of these patients being able to maintain their, their respiratory drive, um, even when, you know, concomitant intoxicants are on board. So... Thanks. And I, I purposely asked this question because I was, I was interested in y'all's pre-hospital uh, scenarios and, and, and protocols uh, because of, uh, things changed in Colorado where I am a couple of years back. There was a very unfortunate pre-hospital case involving several different first responders and a death after administering high-dose ketamine in the field. And I think it highlighted an important consideration in that those, you know, ketamine wasn't used a ton uh, pre-hospital in, in Colorado, about 15 times per year from what I heard. Uh, but I think it highlighted a misunderstanding of those, especially if using it infrequently as, oh, well, 500 milligrams is the concentrated vial size. And so that must be the dose. And it often is the right dose. But of course, we know that it's a little bit more nuanced than that. The, the patient um, that died was... Uh, um, not 100 kilos, I'll put it that way. Um, there were a lot of other confounders involved with this case, and I don't want to get into it. Uh, but ultimately, in 2021, the state of Colorado uh, mandated that ketamine not be used in pre-hospital settings or ambulances. So uh, I guess this provides a good intro for my next question. Uh, Andrew, what are the main considerations when utilizing this dose? 
Yeah. I mean, with any medication, you always worry about, um, you know, your elderly patients, they may require a dose reduction. You know, if the patient is cachectic, doesn't have large uh, muscle tissue to, to be able to administer it safely, the intramuscular route. Um, but really, uh, we've had good experiences here in San Diego since the implementation of it. Uh, we obviously have a lot of uh, patients on methamphetamine, uh, considering our proximity to Mexico. So it does come in handy. And just like the rest of the country, we're dealing with, um, you know, fentanyl contamination and just about every drug that, you know, anybody uses uh, recreationally. So once they get Narcan and wake up, they can be extremely agitated and uh, it's a relatively good agent. Um, I think the, the big point here is again, that you have your agitated patients and they're all on a spectrum. And uh, the, the ones that are physically aggressive and a danger to themselves or hospital employees or other patients, you know, that's when we really want to chemically restrain these patients. Uh, there's alternative methods for patients that are less aggressive. Ketamine, like Kurt said, is really considered like the definitive, you know, sedative, if you will. Uh, when you're Haldol and your Midazolam and your, your Geodon or your Zyprexa is not doing it, uh, ketamine generally does it because patients really can't develop a tolerance or be incredibly difficult to develop a tolerance to ketamine. And we use it specifically uh, in California because we don't have droperidol because California has regressive, restrictive monitoring requirements for droperidol, which is a great agent for agitation from my understanding, but I can never get my hands on it. You know, California requires essentially ECG monitoring every time droperidol is administered. And if it's not, then it's like a $50,000 fine. So it's absolutely ridiculous, but uh, and, uh, thank you, California. Wow, super interesting. I was going to say we should do a droperidol podcast, but the, uh, you know, the one indication that um, we haven't quite covered that I think falls under, under this realm is, you know, we fairly commonly see an agitated trauma activation um, so somebody who comes in who um, is aggressive or violent, and we actually are often able to get intravenous access in that setting, but we need to facilitate imaging and an exam. Um, and so in that scenario, we will utilize either high-dose intramuscular ketamine or the, the higher end of the intravenous dosing range. I think the management considerations there are mostly to come up with a plan for what happens when it wears off. Um, so what are we going to do when it goes away? And, you know, the methamphetamine hasn't necessarily been metabolized at that point. And I think it's worth having that discussion as the clinical pharmacist in the room of like, what's the plan after this? Um, the other thing would be, especially if you do the intravenous dosing, is that the um, duration of effect is relatively short compared to a full trauma recess exam. And so to try to time that dose, maybe before, you know, see the effect, but of course, time it so that it covers your duration of time in the CT scanner, for instance, um, just knowing that it might not necessarily last as long as all of the interventions that may be needed for that, for that patient. Great, great points there, um, especially with trauma and pharmacist's role in helping to time um, all the things that happen with the trauma, including exam, CT, and, and so forth. Kurt, anything uh, else to add? I just have one other point, if that's okay. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I just want to make sure that uh, those who are listening know that, you know, I think in the emergency medicine world, we think of this as like a desert island drug. Like if we had three medicines in the hospital, this would be one of the three medicines. And the reason for that is because it's safe. Um, so I think there's this perception of this drug as like a anesthetic and a thing that's traditionally been used in the operating room. But most of the evidence shows that it's safe than our alternatives. It's safer than benzodiazepines. Um, it's safer certainly than more and more uh, full mu agonist opioids. And so we prefer this agent predominantly because of the safety. Um, and I, I want to make sure that you know those who are listening who may not have as much experience with ketamine understand that really this is on the, on the uh, less adverse effect end of things if it is unique uh, in its adverse effect profile. Thanks, Karen. I think that's great. To, certainly important to highlight uh, the long track record of, of ketamine use in healthcare. Kurt, Andrew, thank you both so much for coming on and discussing this important topic for all of our settings, being the emergency department. I hope this provided an interesting discussion for those tuning in. As a reminder, uh, we want to include a few of our favorite studies in the show notes, so there will be a few studies included there. Make sure to check those out. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education for listening to this episode by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. Please note that continuing education credit expires two years after the date this episode is published. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.